Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This week we pick up our study of this letter to the capital of the Roman Empire uh, by the Apostle Paul with verse 18. Just prior to our scripture text today, in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul has been saying to the Christians there in Rome how much he anticipates coming to them, and that the reason he anticipates coming to them, he wants to come to them, is, so for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so his desire is to preach the gospel to them. His mention of preaching the gospel causes him immediately to exclaim what he feels deep inside him, what's in his heart about the gospel. And there he says what we studied two weeks ago, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You can imagine writing Donald Trump and his wife or the Washington Post or the Democratic uh, members of Senate. And from each of these groups, there, there is a godly person who is in the church. And you can imagine the disdain of Washington, D.C. for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he's eager, he's eager to go there and to preach the gospel, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the power of the world and the Roman Empire focus concentrated there in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, well, what is Washington, D.C.? It's the power of the world. He says, for it, the gospel, is the power of God. For the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the gospel is God's power, and we have to have God's power, as we sang. If it weren't for him, we would never, ever, in a million years, turn our ear to listen to him, let alone worship him and obey him. God has to raise us from the living death we live in our trespasses and sins. And listen, that is every single one of you. There is not one of you here that does not need God to raise you from your death. Now, the Apostle Paul has just said this. And now we pick it up. And so what does he do? Well, you know, he's talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God to everyone who believes, Jew and Greek. You know, it's you know, are you ready? It's really, it's really inclusive. Y'all with me? You know, the highest value that any intellectual has today is inclusivity. It's real inclusive. Everyone, Jew, Gentile. And so now what would you expect him to do? Well, if this were the four spiritual laws, or if this were... Almost all of evangelicalism today, he'd proceed to go into the upbeat, up-tempo explication of all the wonders of God lowering himself to our world and giving himself to the shame and, 
and infamy of, of the manger in Bethlehem and having no room in the inn. And, then, and it would just be from glory to glory. Every day in every way, the world would get better and better because God loves us so. And of course, in the world today, the one thing we know is that God should love us because we're lovable. Joe and I have a fight every Sunday morning. And it's because he's lovable and I'm lovable. And because Joe is so sweet, he doesn't know about the fight. I'm the only one that knows about it. But every Sunday morning, Joe comes in, and he takes the work table, and he puts his briefcase right where I have to staple my sermon. Isn't that you that puts the briefcase there? Who? All right, all right. I've been antagonistic to the wrong man. Who puts that briefcase there? (laughs) Now, we laugh about this. But you look at the way you drive. It's turf, people. It's turf. It's all about turf. We're all about protecting our prerogatives, and and ultimately, we're about letting God know who precisely I am. Because if Joe Rice should know who I am, God should know who I am. And this is how we approach God. Every single Sunday, Max tells me to get on my knees, oh, And just because I have some, some basic notion that you pay me, I get on my knees. Because I think it would be scandalous if the guy you pay doesn't get on his knees. But do I like it? And I see somebody in front of me lifting their hands in the, in the singing. And immediately I lift my hands. Why? Because I'm spiritual? <laughs> no. It's because I think if somebody else is lifting their hands to Daddy, Abba Father probably I should follow their lead. And after all, they pay me. And this is us. And we are not impressed with God. We think God should be impressed with us. And so... It takes the power of God to bust us loose from our democratic notions and notions of fairness and inclusivity and who am I and I don't live in a monarchy, I live in a democracy, a representational democracy and my constitution. And we're just so full of ourselves. And, and there's God, and God is omnipotent. And praise God for his omnipotence, because he chooses us. <laughs> Singing about the two of you on my way here this morning, you know. I think I know, <laughs> but I don't know nothing. But God knows. God knows. And God is powerful. Now we're all okay with that, right? Because he chose us, right? That's why we're here. He chose us. Some of you, maybe you're not sure he has, but nevertheless, we're all, 
we're all open to the notion that maybe God has chosen us because we did sing the song after all. But then who is this God? And, you know, we'd expect the Apostle Paul to go on from, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because God loves you and he's, he's found a wife for your life. Or, or is it a man for your plan? Or a plan for your wife? How does that go? Oh, yeah, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, that's how it goes. And this is how we expect the Apostle Paul to flatter us and to pander to us as he opens up the gospel. I am worthy of a plan for my life because God loves me. Okay, God, come on. Let's produce. I want to see something approximating my sense of who I am and what you should do for me. And guess what? That's not what the Apostle Paul does. Guess what? The Apostle Paul doesn't think we're humble enough yet. (laughs) The Apostle Paul doesn't think it's time for dessert because we haven't eaten our green beans. As a matter of fact, we haven't eaten our horseradish. As a matter of fact, we have not allowed light into our dark hearts. Yeah, we're there in the church, and we're just so blithe and so affirmed and so, so full of ourselves, you know? And the Apostle Paul says, okay, listen, here's the gospel. Now, it's very interesting. Listen to the gospel, okay? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says the Apostle Paul. And he now moves into how many verses do you think? He now moves into 63 verses of the gospel. 63. I'm getting through about three or four a week. He now moves into 63 verses, which are a constricting, a boa constrictor of our egos and of our pride and of our self self will and of our self righteousness. And he begins, he wraps these 63 verses around us. And then he constricts. And what is he doing? He's constricting out of us every thought we have of ourselves, of power, of autonomy, of goodness, of self-determination, of, of everything in us that is resistant to the glory of God. Until he reduces us in chapter 3, verse 21, to just crying out for mercy to God. That's me! That's me! He starts with the Gentiles and homosexuality. Well, any idiot knows homosexuality is wrong. Right? And the Gentiles, what would you expect from them anyhow? We can't expect them to be good. They don't... And And he wails on them. And then the transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he says, okay, you Christians now, (laughs) now I'm going to turn on you. You Jews, you know, you have the law. Oh, you're the covenant people. Oh, okay, okay. And then he starts hammering and hammering and hammering and hammering on them. And then he constricts more and he keeps coming down and down until we are left without excuse, without hope, 
except, except Jesus. Except Jesus. Finally, except Jesus. Nothing. This is the word of the Lord, and it's eternally true, Romans 1, 18 to 23. Here's the gospel. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. This is the word of the Lord. It starts out for the wrath of God is revealed. Now, this is not the wrath of your boss or your father. It's not the wrath of Donald Trump. This is the wrath of God. God is angry with the wicked every day. And where does the wrath come? Well, it's revealed from where? It's revealed from heaven. We can escape wrath here on earth by, if it's your wife, you can go out into the garage. Or if it's an enemy, you can hide in the woods. But there is no escaping the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven. None. You ask the Egyptians the night they lost every man his firstborn son. You ask the men and women with their children clinging to the peak of the highest mountain they climbed on top of trying to escape the floods rising waters in the time of Noah. You ask the Sodomites who were being enveloped in brimstone and fire raining down on them from the skies. You ask the men who cry out to the mountains to fall upon them, upon our Lord's second coming in power and judgment. Echoing our Lord Jesus' own words, in Revelation 6 we read, verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said, to the mountains and to the rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is the wrath of God from heaven. 
this is the wrath of God from heaven. Notice that it does not say the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. It's not past tense. And notice it doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven. It's not future tense. It says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, what is his wrath revealed against? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Man will not recognize God, and he will not obey God. He will not worship God, and he will not serve him. He will not acknowledge God, and he will not conform himself to God's character revealed in his law. Ungodliness, unrighteousness. The unrighteousness of men shows itself in our actively suppressing the truth. We will not worship God, we will not obey him, and then we actively suppress the truth. Men are not truth seekers. Men are truth suppressors. Men are truth haters. Men take the truth, they shove it down the mine, they weaken the timbers, they cap off the mine, and then they blow it to smithereens, hoping that they never, never hear truth again. Never. They actively suppress the truth. You know all the talk about the man in far-off Timbuktu who never heard and therefore can't be held accountable? You know, the Muslim in Saudi Arabia who prays when the mullah announces prayer each day, he prays to Allah because he doesn't know any better. Or the Druidic priesthood that led the people to engage in the pagan worship of old Europe out of ignorance and unbelief. You know, the hundreds and hundreds of millions who were born into and lived and died under atheistic communist tyrants. Stalin and Pol Pot and Mao. Well, they never had a chance to sit under the preaching of God's word. Well, like the men at the time of the Apostle Paul in the ancient Roman Empire, here is the proper diagnosis of their character in their hearts. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Every man. Separate from the life-giving blood of God's own Son and the work of his Holy Spirit in giving faith and turning a man to Christ. All men are ungodly. All men are unrighteous. And all men suppress the truth in that righteousness. So says God. But you can't believe it because you think that God owes every last man a chance, don't you? 
And so you respond, but they didn't know God. They didn't have his word, the Bible. They didn't hear the preaching of his mercy in Jesus Christ. How could God possibly condemn them, let alone shower his wrath down on them from heaven? Well, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul anticipates your objections. Your objection that your ungodly and unrighteous parents and grandparents and husband and son are ignorant and can't and shouldn't be condemned that they should not have God's wrath turned on them. And so, anticipating your objection, he then writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. You say everyone deserves a chance to know and honor God, and here the word of God answers your objections by telling you every man not only has a chance, but actually already knows God. Every man knows God. That which is known about God is clear. It's crystal clear. It's evident within them. Why? Well, because... Every man has within himself an intrinsic knowledge somewhat limited of some truth, right? Or every man has a spark, a a spiritual yearning. Uh, Every man has within himself his own inner light that leads him somewhat, and if he's faithful to the inner light that leads him somewhat, well, then God reaches out and responds. No, no, no. What it says is, That which is known about God is evident within them for what? God made it evident to them. In other words, listen, there is no intrinsic inner light. After the fall, we're dead. We're just dead. And listen, I don't care if you have an IQ of 75 or 150. You're stupid. You have no knowledge of God because it's been suppressed, except insofar as God himself has chosen to make it evident to you, okay? And so the knowledge of God that you have, limited though it may be, is God's gift to you. It required a special act. In other words, there is no general revelation. There's only special revelation. And even God's general revelation is special revelation. Do you see this? Isn't that fascinating? We take for granted all the things that God kept from going kerplooey at the fall. And we think that that's what we deserve, you know? (laughs) No, no, no. God made it evident to you. Without God's revelation, they would not have known God, the revelation of nature. But thanks be to God, he has not left us without knowledge of him. All men know God. All men see it clearly. All men are entirely aware of God and the worship and the obedience he demands and deserves. He is Almighty God, creator of the universe. Finally, the truth is stated in its universal knowledge. There is not one ignorant Russian or African or Asian or Indian or Arab or European or American or Islander or Native American who does not know, quote, it is he who hath made us and not we ourselves.
God, creator of the universe, God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so, no, there is no excuse. The gay figure skater who goes on television and is flattered about how brave he is to be the first gay figure skater who's out. Listen, the gay figure skater who is told he's so brave because he's out as gay. He is not to be pitied. He is not to be pitied. Do you understand me? The Communist Party official in China, he is not to be pitied. It does not matter who his grandfather was, and it doesn't matter how evil the Russians and Chiang Kai-shek were. He is not to be pitied. The Russian mafioso's son in Romania, he is not to be pitied. The Anglican priest in Durham, he is not to be pitied. The coder and computer scientist from Cambridge or Stanford to Caltech is not to be pitied. Edia Men and Robert Mugabe, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince, Abe Fortas, Donald Trump, Malcolm X, they are not to be pitied. And guess what? You and I and our beloved grandfather and our son, our precious son, they are not to be pitied. Do you understand me? They are without excuse. They are without excuse. An awful lot of the work of elders and pastors is spent warning parents against pitying their children who have defied God. Many children grow up with covenant blessings in homes of the godly, the sinful godly, okay? Godly sinners, okay? You with me? People with faith who sin, which is the best you can say about a Christian. Many covenant children grow up in homes like that, and they defy God. Some of them, you see it from the time they come out of the womb. Some of them, it takes years to show up. And then the mother pities that godless son. But what does the Bible say about that son? Well, we haven't gotten to it yet. Because that's a son of the covenant. And I told you the Apostle Paul keeps constricting. We haven't gotten to the Christian homes, children, yet. 
That will come. But right here, we're just with the pagans, and they're without excuse. Why? Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, what do they know? Well, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, in other words, across all time, his invisible attributes, no man's seen God, so God has ways of revealing himself to us through the word, the special revelation through nature, his general revelation. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list. This is not all that we know about God from what he has made. But it's representative, and it is his eternal power and his divine nature. They've been clearly seen. And not just seen, but being understood through what has been made. And if we didn't get it the first time, we get it again. If, it wasn't, if we didn't get it because it's evident, now we're getting it because it actually says, and so they are without excuse. They know his invisible attributes. They know his eternal power. They know his divine nature. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. And we're there... But even that is really a corruption of the word because it excludes what we really know from heaven. And what do we really know from heaven? Well, listen to Psalm 50, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Do you think... That God in heaven reveals he's righteous and that he's a judge. You know, it's easy for us to have the word glory off our tongue. You know, the heaven declares the glory of God. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. And then Psalm 97 5 to 7, the mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare what? <laughs> His righteousness. And all the peoples have seen His glory. Man, this does a number on us. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. This is Psalm 97, 5 to 7. And then the one we know, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And then notice this. Again, we want to give people excuses, and we want to say it's not as clear. Right? We want to say, well, you know, God, God hasn't spoken in their day, in their place, in their language. And so God knows our excuses. He says, night to night reveals knowledge, day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, at all times, at all times, day and night. And then it says, 
There is no speech, nor are there words, that this voice, their voice, is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. There's no time, there's no language, there's no ethnic group. Nowhere, nowhere may any man accuse God of not being fair. We are without excuse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now listen here. If men are without excuse before God, don't you dare make excuses for them. Do you understand me? We never stop making excuses for the people that we love. And there is no excuse for your son. None. There's no excuse for your daughter. I think a lot of times in our homes, the reason that we try to make excuses for our children is that we see the ways that our sin has contributed to their godlessness. And there is no parent, no father, no mother, that that won't be the case. (laughs) This is part of human nature. We will see our sin in our children. And so, please, can I make it evident to you that when you make excuses for them, you're not making excuses for them. You're making excuses for yourself. You're saying that God should not judge your sin in your children. Come on. Let God be God, please. And if that isn't the most pathetic statement you've ever heard from a preacher, I don't know what is. Let God be God, please. Yesterday I was reading um, The Works of Christ in America by Cotton Mather. And don't worry, I don't read The Works of Christ in America by Cotton Mather. But yesterday I happened by accident, or as you say in the South, on accident. I've been trying to break Heather of that for 22 years. (laughs) Northerners say by accident. All right. (laughs) Don't, don't, Don't be offended at me. It's okay. All right. So... On accident, I'm reading Cotton Mather's The Works of Christ in America, right? Have any of you ever even heard of this book? Ah, about six of you. Okay. Well, this is a very, very long two-volume set. My dad actually, daddy, gave it to me. And it's one of the most godly pastors in colonial New England writing about what God has done in, in, in New England. So here he is, a pastor. He's buried right next to Park Street Church. You ever heard of Park Street Church? Has a tiny little cemetery, and he's right there next to it. Kent almost became the senior pastor of Park Street Church. You didn't know that, did you? He almost did. So anyhow, here he is buried, and he goes back to the 1600s, and he writes two thick books like this on the works of Christ in America. Fascinating reading, all right? And so yesterday, on accident, I'm reading the works of Christ in America, and I'm reading him saying that they have a problem. So this is what, 1650, 1630. And he says, our fathers came to this land. Why? He said they took great risks, 
And they went across sea and they were shipwrecked and they died and they had diseases and they starved because they wanted to protect their lambs. That's the word he used. And so they move from England up to Holland. And then even in Holland, they can't get their children far enough away. They're the original homeschoolers, right? And so they have to leave Holland too. And half of them die on the way over here. They're the pilgrims, you know, and they're going to have a clean place because it's only them and their children. Are you all with me? Okay. And guess what happens? He says, and yet, he said, we find that we have become, in the space of 20 or 30 years, grandparents. Grandparents. You know, these things tend to continue. They don't stop with us, you know. The children keep coming, you know. And, and then you have grandchildren. And guess what? He says, you know what's coming. He says, and we look at our grandchildren, and he says they're not claiming Christian faith. They're not keeping covenant with God. And then he says, now... They do give intellectual assent to the truths, and they're not living in any highly profane public way. And yet, nevertheless, they're not making claim of regeneration and that God has saved them, given them new birth. And what are we to do? We came here for these lambs. What are we going to do? And from that comes this long discussion that ends in what? Some of you know the phrase, you may not know the origin of it so well, but New England was shot through with it. It's called the halfway covenant. They could not see cutting these lambs who had become adults, who made no claim of regeneration, and who did not come to the Lord's table, and that's the essential fact. They wouldn't come to the Lord's table. I found myself, as I read it, pleading that God would give us back the fear of the table of the Lord. Being, being so thankful for the integrity of these men and women who would not come to the table of the Lord. Oh yeah, they believed all the intellectual truths, the doctrinal commitments of Christian faith. Nobody denied it. They weren't living in fornication and adultery. None of them were gay. I mean, they were. The gay we have always had with us. But it was hidden. Adultery was hidden. Fornication. Nobody was living in open public slander. Nobody denied the, the, the doctrinal truths of Christianity. And so, Cotton Mather, this godly man, he comes up with his other fellow pastors and elders. He comes up with this system called the Halfway Covenant, where they're going to continue to baptize the children of these children. These children don't come to the table. Don't make claims of regeneration. Do not claim to know God as a Christian knows him. And yet they cannot broach the idea of not baptizing their grandchildren. And so that's the Halfway Covenant. And they baptize the grandchildren, even though neither of the parents makes a claim to Christian faith. The church has always baptized children who have one parent who claims Christian faith. 
Now, I'm talking about people that believed in infant baptism, all right? Those of you who don't believe in infant baptism, it's very easy to translate this, okay? What God says at the end of verse 20 is, so that they are without excuse. And then he gives the reason. He says, for since the creation of the world, excuse me, for even though they, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. You see, the Apostle Paul does not think that you and I do not need repetition. And he says it over and over again. He repeats why it is that they, that we, that our children are without excuse. Despite knowing God, we refuse to honor him as God. We would not honor him. God should be so proud to be in relationship with me. In the remaining years that I have to preach to you, I'm going to tell a story a number of times because I think it's one of the most important stories I've I've ever heard anybody tell in my life. And as most of the good stories do, this one comes from my mother. She was in her 80s. She was here visiting. And those of you who are visitors don't know that she had lost three of her children to death, to leukemia, cystic fibrosis, and hemophilia, and malpractice. And so she was a woman who had suffered much. She was here in her 80s one day, and I don't know what we were talking about. I'm guessing we were talking about roses or cucumbers. It had nothing to do with what she said. And then out of, out of nowhere, my mother looks at me and she says, you know, she says, when Johnny was, had leukemia, now Johnny was my brother who was five when I was four, or four when I was three, or four when I was four, I don't know, we were close like that. And Johnny had gotten leukemia and they'd gone to Children's Hospital because we had good connections in Philadelphia to, to it. And my mother and dad were, were new Christians, and they read in the Bible that it says, if any man is sick, let him, let him call for the elders, and they'll anoint him with oil, and, and he'll be healed. The prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. And being very simple, faithful Christians, they called for the elders, had them anoint Danny with oil, prayed over him, and he was healed. That's what the Bible said. And so they went down to Children's Hospital and they thanked all the doctors and nurses and everybody that had taken care of Johnny and they said, thank you so much for your kindness to us. We won't be needing you anymore because Danny has been healed. Well, Danny went into remission for one year. And it was in that year of Danny's remission, which they thought was his healing, that two women came over I don't know if they were from the school or the church. It really didn't make much difference the way it doesn't here today. You know, it could have been two mothers from Lighthouse or from Clearnote or who knows, but they were two women who were godly and two women who actually cared about other people. 
And so they were at my mother's house. You know, are you ever at anybody's house who's suffering? Or do you just stay away? I mean, honestly, people, do you have any sensitivity to people who suffer and do you go and help them? Honestly. Now, you're wondering where that comes from. Well, I'm channeling my wife, right, love? Tell them, yep. Yeah, she's in, she's in the kitchen. She says, yep, yep. So these women are there, and they're doing dishes. They're cleaning the kitchen. I don't know what they're doing. My mother's with them. And they turn to my mother, and they say, isn't it wonderful that God has healed Danny? And my mother's quiet, and then she says, now, mind you, we've been talking about roses or cucumbers. She's in her 80s. And she just starts telling this story. So they were in in my kitchen. We were working together, and they said to me, isn't it wonderful that God has healed Danny? And she's not even looking at me. She's just like absent-minded. And I said to them, so you think Danny's been healed? Oh, yes, 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 they said. Danny's been healed. And she said, I said to them, so how do you know Danny has been healed? This is the mother talking. (laughs) This is the mother talking. And they say, well, because God has healed him. And my mother says, how do you know? And these, these women, not the mother of Danny, these women, they say, because God has said so, God has told us. Are you all with me? You all with me? Come on, give me some love. Say, yeah, we're with you, Tim. Come on. Come on, it doesn't hurt you to say that kind of stuff. Help the preacher. And my mother stops. That's it. That's it. Back to the cucumbers or roses. And I'm sitting there, and apropos to nothing, <laughs> you know, out it comes. She's in her 80s. She's not senile, you know. And so I'm thinking, what on earth is she talking about? Where did that come from? <laughs> you know. And I say, Mud, what on earth? And she says, what? I said, you just told me the story. What, 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 did it have to, what are you trying to say to me? She says, God is God. And she yelled it. God is God. Listen, people, I did not ask her what she meant. I did not ask her a question. My mother in Israel had spoken. And what she was saying was, all of this, all our thoughts of ourselves and our children and our nation and just what God owes us and all the excuses we can give for our sons, nah, When God decides that he will take the life of my brother Danny, it is his prerogative. As my father used to say, God has given us children on loan, and at any time he can take his loan in. He can call it.
even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And I cannot think of a better description of higher education today. Higher education is filled with speculations that are caused by and that result in darkened hearts. I think of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, which is an account of the wickedness of the African continent, written in the 1800s. And it's such an awful book that I could not finish it. It's very short. I could not bear to finish that book. The wickedness and horror of the the colonizers and the colonized. And equal parts of both, the white Europeans and the black Africans, hearts of darkness. It makes uh, things fall apart look tame. It makes things fall apart look like an absolute fairy tale. And God has darkened our hearts. God has darkened us. God has turned out the lights on the church of America today. Do you understand me? The church in America has darkened hearts. It has lots of speculations. You go onto the internet and you read what young reformed pastors and elders have to say, and you talk about speculations and darkness. It's awful. And they never quote scripture. And they, their hero is, they call themselves scholastics, and their hero is Thomas Aquinas. And it's speculations, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on, and it's darkened hearts. There is no concern for the sheep. There's no concern for holiness. It's speculations and darkened hearts. Professing to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And do you see that here? You know, we won't worship the incorruptible God. The incorruptible God, you know, somebody was some, I don't know who it was, George Bernard Char, somebody said, you know, if man ever wants to know what he is or needs to be reminded, he should look at his stomach. Well, stomach is, is a euphemism, <laughs> right? He should look down, right? You all know what he's talking about, right? You have steady, constant reminders during your life, right? Right? That you are not incorruptible, God has not left us without a witness about our being corrupted. God never goes to the bathroom. God is incorruptible. God is incorruptible. But we won't have him. (laughs) 
And so we make idols. We're just idol manufacturing machines. We're, we're so good at it. And we start with our children. They're our idols. And, and then we go to actresses and sports figures and intellectuals and authors and on and on and on and on and on. And even that has some dignity because actually man, as man, bears the image of God. And so we have something right. You know, that it's actually the one who's made in the image and likeness of God that we make into an idol, right? You all with me? But of course we don't stop there. But we move on to the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon and hummingbirds. But of course we don't stop there. We go on to dogs. I'm down at the greenhouse and, and this man and this woman, they come with these baby carriers. They've got dogs in their baby carriers. And we think it's funny. When I was a young man just married, I read this book. And it was a book of early church fathers and the sermons they preached to their people. And I read this sermon where an early church father condemned his people. He said, you spend so much money on your dogs. And he said, you don't even hear the cries of the infants out on the slopes behind your house who are starving to death. Because that's what they did. They did have abortion, but most of the kids that were born, they didn't want, they just... I talked to a guy, Sam Moffat at Princeton, a missionary. He talked about being over in Asia when he was a young man and seeing the children left on the riverbanks. And today, we have commercials in mainstream television about hiring a woman to go and to befriend your dog in the middle of the day when you're there a drone and a drudge at a desk, a woman. But you have sympathy for your dog, so you send a woman over there, and there's, there's an app. And you can see on the app, literally this is the commercial, you can see on the app that she's shown up to comfort your dog in his loneliness. Okay? And the end of the ad, this is true, I just saw it yesterday, the end of the ad is that the app will actually tell you where he pees and poops. This is us. We have no concern about the children being slaughtered at Planned Parenthood on South Walnut across the street from, from, from Kroger. We have never gone there and offered to take one of those children into our home. We have no concern to bring in foster children. None. We have adopted no children from other parts of the world. We are loveless. And yet we read this and we think, well, I haven't made idols out of any people and I haven't made idols out of any birds and I haven't made idols out of any dogs. You know that two days ago I talked to a man in this church who told me that his relatives won't visit 
and that their excuse, godly relatives, their, their excuse for not visiting their grandchildren and loving the flesh and blood God has given them is that they have very sensitive dogs who need to be taken care of. Oh, but this is not speaking to us. No, no. You know, this isn't us. This isn't me, you know. Thank goodness Kenya's gone, <laughs> you know. Our dog, you know. Kind of loved him, you know. Man, birds, four-footed animals. And what happens is we decay even in our wickedness. And so our idolatry starts with the one creature that's made in the image of God. And then it goes to the birds who are in the heavens. And then it comes down to the four-footed animals. And then it ends with the animals that crawl on the ground, and that's us. That's the evolutionist. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now, I know right about now you're all thinking, well, where's the hope, Tim? You know what I say to you? There is no more hopeful message for the one that loves Jesus. Because there's no better condition for any man than for him to be left without excuse. I have never known men in as terrible bondage as men who will never shut their mouths with their excuses. Nobody is in more of a pitiable condition than a man who doesn't stop making excuses. Because what happens is when we finally give up our excuses and we accept the boa constrictor indictment of us and we say what? <laughs> Every younger brother knows. Uncle! Uncle! It's such a wonderful thing to say. And that's the nature of Christian faith, uncle. That's all it is. It's God, your, your, your conviction, your indictment, everything you say about me and about my sons and daughters, it's true. And then we plead with God to have mercy on us and our children. And this is the Apostle Paul for the next 63 verses, or 33 or 36, 63, 63. And we're like, uh, okay, I got it. The Apostle says, no, you haven't yet. So after 20, yep, I tell you, I've got it. No, you haven't got it yet. 30 verses. I'm telling you, I got it. No, I think you do, but the Holy Spirit is inspiring me to keep going. 
40 verses, 50 verses, 60 verses, 61, 62, 63 verses of relentless indictment of our self-will, our pride, our excuses, everything we think that should commend us to God. And God says in his kindness, no. God says, I am God. God says, I am incorruptible. And I live in unapproachable light. I love you very much. And it's because of my love for you that I will not, I will not. One last thing and I'm done. Yesterday I was also reading the bylaws that we're hoping to adopt with our group of churches, right? And it was a very old set of Presbyterian uh, book of order. It was very interesting because they had instructions for how you were to deal with licentious. Well, a a licensee, a licentiate is somebody who comes to the pastors and elders and says, listen, I want to preach and this church wants me to preach. They don't have a regular pastor. I'm willing to preach. Would you examine me? So they all examine him for his knowledge of word, his knowledge of uh, languages, his character, his call. And then they license him to preach. So this is not a pastor who's being ordained. This is a licentiate, all right? And so I read through this, and then I read through the questions that were to be asked by the presbyter, in other words, by the pastors and elders of him, as he undertook that call to be a licensed preacher, right? Not a pastor, not ordained. Then a little by a later, I'm reading the account of what you're to do to examine those who are coming for actual ordination. So these are people who are actually going to be ordained, laying on of hands, set apart to be shepherds of a flock, right? And all of a sudden I noticed that there was a difference in the questions that were asked about the intentions of the person to be set apart, a difference between the licentiate and the, and the pastor. I had never noticed this before. Do you know what the question was that they asked the pastor that was different? The question was, are you prepared to be faithful when you are persecuted? Or are you going to give in? You don't like these messages. But I love you, and I will not stop. I will not stop. You know why? (laughs) Because I need them. I need them. And if I need them, you need them too. My mother thought I needed them. My mother was no ditz brain. So, you ready? You're welcome. Come on, come on, that's, yeah, thank me, yeah. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. Oh, thank God for the Holy Spirit. Thank God for Jesus who, who was humbled even to death on the cross. Thank God for Alex's preaching today. You missed it. You come here late for worship. 
and you don't come to Alex's teaching. And you're foolish. You're very foolish, I promise you. You come for Alex's teaching next week. You must be zealous in using the means of grace. Okay? <laughs> okay, I'm not being abusive, actually. Those of you with bad dads, I'm just being a good dad. Okay? So let's pray.